friends, Harmony here. I just had a few things that I wanted to disclaim before the podcast starts. So this podcast was recorded in two parts because of technical difficulties. And in the second part, Maggie gets a little bit tipsy. You can't really tell at the beginning, but it gets progressively more and more hilarious. I think it's more hilarious anyway as it goes on and towards the end. So if anything seems a little off or there's some Maggie slurring words, just, you know, go along with the ride. The second thing I wanted to talk about was the fact that we are now on iTunes. That's right, we're on iTunes. And if you haven't yet, it'd be great if you could share and rate and review our podcast. It really helps other people view us and find us, and we would just really appreciate it. I'd also like to add that my views expressed on Beatrice do dramatically change the further we get along into the book, so be looking out for that. And I'm sorry if any of you really like Beatrice. I now also like her too, but it it was a journey. Okay, I hope you have a wonderful time. Enjoy. And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club! I'm Harmony. I'm Maggie. And we are reading The Witches of New York. So today we are reading pages 255 to 347 of The Witches of New York by Amy McKay. I have written out a small summary. It is not as good as Maggie's summary, but here we go. (laughs) In this section, we meet the late, great Tobias, Brody's dad. (laughs) I'm going to call him Tobias throughout the episode, and everyone just has to deal with that. And Beatrice starts on her path of becoming a star. The ghosts at Marietta Stevens Hotel figure out that they now have a way to communicate with the living. Our villainous reverend tried to tame little Adelaide, i.e. the street child we met last section, and we come across a group of prostitutes. And that's basically everything you need to know, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, that's the, ma- that's the major hits, you know. Okay, so did you have any thoughts while reading this section? Um, kind of like how we mentioned last time, this is when the book becomes slightly less of a character study and becomes a lot more plot driven. So to a certain extent in this like hundred page section, some of the threads that we've been talking about and building up a little bit in relation to the characters that we, you know, now have come to know really well have been dropped and we're seeing some other things start to really brew. I think that this section is the one that most focuses on Beatrice and it also most focuses on building up to the climax of the story, really, because ultimately what we're building to here is like a showdown between Beatrice and her friends as like these great witches versus the reverend. 
and we're like aware that the reverend is doing shady things but like this is really the sections where we see in a lot of depth just how messed up he is um so like a lot of what happens in this hundred page section is just so action-packed in comparison to the last 250 pages that it's almost hard to compare because so many of the themes that we were talking about and have been talking about and will come back later aren't super present in this section. I agree. And we wanted to start off talking about Beatrice and her journey, this section. And I think that it's best exemplified on page 292. And when she has her fortune drawn by our friend Adelaide, 291 to 292, she draws prudence, fortune, hope, and courage. And the courage card kind of gets lost away. And it's interesting because I think this sets us up for what we're going to be talking about for the majority of this section. Because the way Adelaide reads it, she reads it as being oh, this looks like, it looks like Beatrice is going to be like on her path to becoming big or or famous almost, or like having some sort of prosperity. And that doesn't always mean wealth, but I think for Adelaide, it very much means wealth. And then she finds the courage card and she sees these two paths for Beatrice. One in which Beatrice is really distressed and one in which she is like really prosperous. And Adelaide kind of shrugs it away and doesn't let Beatrice know what the courage card means. But I think that it's important for setting up Beatrice's character. Courage, Adelaide thought. You will face an unexpected challenge that requires fearlessness and great strength. And instead, she just kind of shrugs it off and tells Beatrice that she let the card get away. So I think that we are starting to see Beatrice move into the prosperous side. We see her coming to terms with her witch powers and we see other people recognizing it. But we have not yet seen her really struggle yet. But in the beginning, we kind of get to the seeds of that because Sister Piddox sees Beatrice and she has this desire to get her away from the witches. She wants to save Beatrice's innocence. And I think that's maybe foreshadowing for the future. I think the other important thing to think about with this reading is that Adelaide is, you know, of course, actually focused on Beatrice, right? Because that's who she's supposed to be thinking about. But Mm -hmm. Beatrice sees them as being like each person, you know? So like Beatrice says, Prudence is Eleanor, Fortune is Adelaide, and Hope is herself. So like- Adelaide is very much, um, of course, focused on Beatrice here, but Beatrice is the one that focuses it in on the fact that they have greater power together, which ends up being a very important piece of foreshadowing throughout the book, which Adelaide recognizes here because she says, I'd say it means we're good company for each other. We're better together than apart. It bodes well for all of our futures. But having said that, like, in this reading, Adelaide doesn't focus as, like, that's all Adelaide says about it. And ultimately, Adelaide's reading almost ends up being kind of a misreading. Like, there are certain things that end up being important about it, but really the thing that will, like, foreshadow the rest of the book is that idea, right? Like, that they're better as a trifecta than they are apart. So I think it's just interesting because 
I think it also talks a little bit about the nature of tarot, where like there are so many different meanings and so many different options. That's why fortune telling whatever is for many people not actually about like seeing the future and just kind of seeing one possible outcome based on the circumstances and how you're feeling about everything right now, you know, because like Adelaide gets close to what's actually correct, but she only talks about it if Beatrice is prompting and she's focused much more on other aspects of it, even with that courage card, you know. That's really interesting. I didn't read it that way, but now I see what you mean. And I I wonder if that is what spurs the adversity that Beatrice has to face is the fact that right now, not all three women have the same goal and they're not all working together. Yeah, that's super true. They're very, even though Beatrice and Eleanor are close, like they're, they're three kind of independent cogs doing their own thing right now. And the thing that's currently bringing them together is just the tea shop. But in actuality, they can't act, they can't start solving their problems until they really come together and work together toward a common goal later in the book. Yeah, that's really interesting. To be um, fair, there isn't much adversity at this point right now for them no. to come together against, right? Because like they, I think something that's interesting about this book is that everything that the reader knows is not information that the characters are privy to, right? So like, we see all of this drama happening with Sister Piddock and the Reverend. And in this section, we see that there are starting to become other influences involved in their kind of little duo, so to speak. But these three women are still just like trying to live their lives, you know? I think yeah. that's part of what makes it such a slow build as part of this book is because the reader sees stuff that the main characters don't for so long. But I also think that for me, that's what makes the end of the book such a heavy payoff. Because like when they figure out what's happening, it's very intense and very high stress. And we're starting to see some of that collaboration building in this section. Yeah. And we do see like, we do get to see bits of the adversity. This is the section in which the rock gets thrown to the through the window. But it says, I know who you are. Mm-hmm. So they're they're getting to see. I know what of, you are. Oh right, I know what you are. That's important. <laughs> so we're getting to see bits and pieces of that, but I think too it's it's hard because like they are three women and three unconventional women, and so they each kind of face normal adversity, and it it hasn't gotten hyped up yet. Yeah. So that's yeah okay. Not necessarily in relation to Beatrice, but. I think off air, Maggie and I talked a lot about the moons and what they mean. And on page 261, while I was reading this, there was a spell that correlated with the waning moon. And I was really upset previously about not knowing why the waning moon happened in last section. But I just wanted everyone to know that the waning moon is important in this section, even though it's very briefly important. (laughs) Because it corresponds with the spell on page 261. And that has nothing to do with feminism, but uh, y'all should know. What we discussed, so Harmony and I did spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the significance of the moons were as part of, as like the section dividers here. And what Google told us is that actually on these dates in 1880, this is what the phases of the moon were. So like that, this is accurate right like on september 25th 1880 it was a third quarter moon in this section you know yes 
Which also kind of gets me to something that we were talking about also off air in relation to our other section. Maggie had made a good point. So the, the spell that happens here, it's uh, page 261 and Eleanor is trying to like seal the shop and make sure no bad stuff comes in. Under the watch of the waning moon, I sweep out the old to make room for the new, she says. But I think this is interesting because Maggie pointed out in another section that a lot of the magic in this section is very ritualized and how women in general tend to have more, they have more rituals built into their day, we think, than men. Yeah, in some ways. But I think that, so when we were talking about this, Harmony pushed back with the sense that like a lot of the ritualization that's built into kind of a a woman's day, I guess, is it's very based around like self-care and things like that. But I think that, and also caring for others, potentially. So I think that the interesting thing about this and about magic is that all of the ritualization here mirrors that kind of necessity, because magic is either here like a form of self-care, trying to figure yourself out, trying to figure out the world that you live in, or you're actively trying to protect pretty much you or someone you love or things like that. So I think that that's a really interesting parallel parallel is that so much of this is just very heavily ritualized and i mean obviously it's kind of like a no duh right magic is ritualized that's a thing but i just think it's interesting to also think about it in conversation with the fact that all of the female like all of the practitioners of magic we see here are female and even Adelaide has her own specific rituals, even though she's hesitant to identify herself as a witch and hesitant to come into her power. She has a set way that she does things when she's doing readings and things like that. The routine is there, but it's more important than a routine, I think. Because I think that with a routine, there's like an implication that it's not something that you're thinking about and being intentional about. And the difference between that and a ritual is that like you're thinking about it. You are doing this actively to get to x result and we see that most often with eleanor probably because she's other than her mother she's the character that we know the best that we can describe most most as a witch i guess not i I think it's interesting though because we do see rituals in larger society in relation to a type of magic like prayer or spirituality everything when you go to a religion is heavily ritualized for the most part like most big religions But in the type of witchcraft that McKay is trying to depict, it's all very home-based and personalized, and it's not, like, institutional. And I do think that perhaps, like, when we think of the home, we tend to think of women, no matter how wrong that is. (laughs) And I I do think that is more heavily associated with femininity, like the personal rituals. Yeah, for sure. So I just thought that was an important thing to point out. Do we see Beatrice ritualizing at all? Not a ton, because the thing about this section is that, so like last section, we start to see Beatrice look at the grimoire a little bit, but she is still sort of unsure about whether magic is even, like she she isn't looking at it as like a self-exploration. She's just kind of like looking at it to look at it. This is the section where we really see Beatrice actually learn how to do magic a little bit. So I would say on the one hand that, yes, we see her interact with some ritual, but it's different because she's still figuring out what works best for her. Like in this whole section, we see her contact so many ghosts, right? Because part of what we understand is that Beatrice's magic is very 
steeped in this ability to talk to the dead and things like that. Like that's a place where her power really naturally lies. So we see a lot of her developing ways and figuring out how, like what the best way to do that is. But I think it's also interesting because throughout the book, as she's figuring out how that works in her own personal rituals, like, yes, on the one hand, she does lean on Eleanor's grimoire, but also on the other hand, she tries multiple different methods until she really ends up settling on what does and doesn't work for her and what tools are helpful for her and what circumstances and what aren't. I think the interesting part about ritual in relation to Beatrice is watching someone actually figure out what ritual means for them. Because for Eleanor, it's very much ingrained. Eleanor, we see her ritual, but there's no learning curve, right? Like, she's been doing this for years. It's also interesting, too, though, because Eleanor doesn't, I don't know, maybe, maybe the book contradicts me and I'm just not remembering right. But it doesn't seem like Eleanor has really gone through that process of developing it for herself. Like, she has it from her mother and she's really just continuing her mother's work. Eleanor doesn't seem upset or bothered by that either. No, I'm just, I'm trying to remember what happened during the dumb supper and what was said to Eleanor and if that's, if that's relevant at all. Uh, Eleanor was essentially just told that like she was a very powerful witch deeply connected to like the ancestors of all the witches and that she needs to like remember that and get over her heartbreak so that she can get back to that. Okay, okay. So it doesn't challenge at all the fact that she hasn't, I mean, I guess probably she does. And maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe she has already figured it out for herself. And this is maybe her doing it. And she didn't go to nursing school. So I guess that does help too. Like she didn't just blindly follow her mother's path. I think that, I think that the assumption we're supposed to make here is that she greatly respected her mother and greatly respects her traditions, but does what works for her as well, right? Like, I think the interesting thing about Eleanor is the balance between the respect for ritual that has been passed down for generations and adapting things and using things that work for her and her context, you know? Okay. All right. Interesting. On that note, I also wanted to talk a little bit about ghosts and about Beatrice's magic and about how that... I find, I find it interesting that... The way Beatrice is first experiencing magic is in a way to help people. And I think that lines up with the premise of the book. Like Eleanor, our go-to witch, sees witchcraft as a way to help people. But also, I don't know. I just like, it's weird that these these ghosts have to like take over Beatrice in order to, to be heard. And I wonder if the fact that we have a female presenting character makes that more believable if that makes sense. So you mean in the sense, just to be, just to be clear. So we see Beatrice in this section talk to ghosts and interact with ghosts in multiple different ways, but the only way for ghosts to actually be able to speak in a way for others to hear them is through Beatrice. So yeah, just to be clear for our listeners, just in case anyone hasn't read the book for a while, Beatrice can talk to whoever she wants, kind of whatever she wants to a certain extent, but the only way for others to hear it is through Beatrice. Yeah, but it's like her magic isn't, I mean, except for the first spell that she does that cements her as a witch. The witch's ladder, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, cements her as magical. We don't really see spell work coming out and, like, directly benefiting Beatrice. Like, it's not a selfish thing. And I don't know why. Like, it's fine that she's helping people, but that 
bothers me a little well, bit. I, I look back on that a little bit because on page 265, we see Eleanor show Beatrice how to make a witch's pocket to protect herself. And that's that's the first piece of spell work we see her do besides talking to ghosts. Okay. And that happens before all of like all of the rest of going to talk to ghosts that happens in this chapter. Okay. I just still think that it's like I think the idea of talking to ghosts is interesting because it's a it's a selfless thing. Like these spirits are coming to her and seeking her out so that they can be heard. And then they are physically either through this device or through other means, like possessing her. Like they're physically using her as a conduit. And I wonder if you see that as gendered at all. I I think that like the answer is both yes and no, because I think that the answer is that in the greater mythology about the way it talks, so I, I think for me that answer is kind of complicated because that it's yes and no. I think that this book specifically is talking about this as a gendered thing. Maybe do I think that the greater mythology that like sets this aspect of the book up to be believable is gendered? Probably. Because I think that like there's a wide like Amy McKay is not the first person to be like ghosts talk through you as a conduit, you know? Yes. Like, so I don't think that she is necessarily using it as a gendered thing but i think the potentially part of like the the lore and the mythology surrounding it that's been here for hundreds and hundreds of years is potentially gendered right because so much of the lore and mythology about things like this is you know i i guess i see what you're saying on another note i wonder it seems like Beatrice is taking these marginalized voices in a way and making them heard. And I wonder if she's acting sort of as a revolutionary person in this aspect. And if this is inherently feminist or inherently witchy by taking these dead voices and giving them life again and, you know, making sure that there's power. And we kind of see that more when we go into the Marys, that aspect of, of like making sure that these voices that can't be heard are heard. I think that we are having some pretty big technical difficulties at this moment. Is Mercury still retrograde? I don't actually know. Hello, come back. Can you hear me now? Yeah, you're back. I think that Beatrice is acting as a revolutionary figure. Okay. By making sure that these marginalized voices are heard. And I wonder if that is inherently feminist or inherently witchy. Or is she, do you see her acting as a revolutionary figure by speaking for the dead or allowing the dead to speak through her? No, I never would have thought of that. And I also think that, like, I get what you're saying, but I do think that it can be kind of dangerous to say that she's representing marginalized voices here just because, like, as far as we know, none of the people who are like, dead and speaking through her are in marginalized communities. So, like, I... Mary Donnelly. The Marys. The Marys are marginalized. I guess. I mean, yeah. I'm using death as a metaphor for marginalized. I'm using it metaphorically. No, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. I just think that, like, we have to be careful with that metaphor. Cause, like, we do see a lot of other marginalized communities here being represented in other ways, in much stronger ways um, throughout this story. 
I see the analogy that you're making. I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure, I guess. Like, uh, that's that's my answer. I never would have read it that way. But I see why you do. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add about Beatrice's journey? I think it's really interesting that Beatrice had such a hard time connecting with her mother. Because we start to see in this section. So Beatrice is kind of dogged a little bit by Adelaide's mom, right? Because we all know that Adelaide's mom wants to talk to her. But in this section, we also see that Beatrice's own mother would like to talk to her and is having a hard time getting through. So I think it's also interesting because especially talking about like Beatrice being selfish versus selfless and things like that. I think that it's Beatrice has the opportunity to be selfish a couple of times here and talk to her mother and doesn't because she's scared and also like the opportunity gets kind of muddled up and things like that. But there's a clear opportunity for Beatrice to just kind of take the floor back for herself to talk to this mother who she's always wanted to know better. And she doesn't take it. So I, I read that part as being really interesting, I guess. Like it just, I didn't think about it like this before we started having this conversation about like Beatrice being selfish versus selfless. But I think that there's also something to be said about the fact that sometimes doing something for yourself is actually the scary thing. And I think that can be kind of especially true as a woman. It's like scary. I think it can be when being confronted with sort of like getting everything you've ever wanted, right? Like Beatrice is a witch, which is something she's really wanted. She's on this great adventure. She suddenly has friends. And then on top of all of that, her mother like can come back and talk to her. Like, I think that there's a a way in which all of that all at once can be really overwhelming probably. And like, I think that the selfish thing to do I think she almost did it by not talking to her mother. Because I think that if she was really going to be like peak selflessness, she would have made space for her mother in that moment to have. Part of the problem was environmental. Beatrice saw that somebody wanted to talk to her. You get the implication that she knows that it's her mother. And yet she's, she doesn't do anything to change the environmental factors that would have allowed her mother to actually say something in that moment. And I think that that kind of makes sense, right? It's a big deal to be able to suddenly talk to a dead loved one, especially one that she has probably built up so much as her mother living with her Aunt Lydia. So, like, I think that we see Beatrice definitely using her power selflessly in a lot of ways. But I think she's also judicious enough with it that she's, like, she's not just bearing her soul to whoever wants to talk to her whenever, right? Like, she's definitely using it in some sense of self-preservation, until she can figure out, like, how to talk to her mother and, like, how to think about all of that, you know? Interesting. And why do you why do you think that she doesn't talk to her mom exactly? Just because it's, like, a big, scary thing? So in the book, in the book, what's said was mm-hmm. that there was so much stuff happening that, like, she could see the hands and she could see that they wanted to say something, but, like, she couldn't read the message properly. But part of that was because there was so much other chaos happening because Adelaide and Brody were like like digging out this message and whatever. And 
Beatrice could have stopped that and didn't. And I think that she didn't stop it out of a sense of self-preservation and like not being ready. Really? Because I, I, I didn't remember that part as much this read through. But I remember when I was reading it the first time, I felt like she didn't stop it because she was like being polite and meek. Oh, that's not how I read it at all. Maybe I need to do a reread. And I think that we see a huge shift in these later chapters when she goes to New York with the meekness than we do in the introduction of Beatrice. In the introduction, I see her as this nerdy scientist girl who's going to take the world by storm. And she does do, like, she does things in order to get herself to New York that are really brave. And she is brave, and we see more of that bravery throughout. But I feel like we kind of see her fall into this, like, maiden character in the middle of the book and for the majority of the book. I read her so differently than you do. It's kind of not even funny. I don't know. I so like I'm I'm back at it. I'm back at this this part that I'm talking about again and it's divided between page 282 and 286. So okay. what actually happens is on page 282. Beatrice was still seated at the spiritoscope. As she listened to their exclamations of wonder, she felt another presence draw near. A second pair of hands placed themselves on hers, feminine and familiar, thumbnails marked by little moons, a wedding band shining on a ring finger. The boar tentatively danced and floated beneath their touch, a mother guiding her daughter in a message that was long overdue. Sadly, no one saw. So we don't even know that Beatrice saw it. No, she does, because on page 286, it opens with Beatrice did not mention her mother's brief visitation. <laughs> well, she mentions the hands, but she didn't see the message. No, which is part of the point. Um, okay. So it says, it goes on to say on page 286, the spirit had been there for a moment and gone. It left her terribly disappointed and sad, but what could be done about it now? Nothing. So like Beatrice is upset about the fact that she isn't able to talk to her mother. But there's also... To me, there just also seems to be, like, an undertone as well of, like, I think the fear is the fact, I think for me, the fear aspect of it reads from the fact that she didn't know what her mother meant to say. And, like, she's, that wasn't a, that's never been a problem with any of the other ghosts that she encounters, right? Like, but if she had known more about what her mother meant to say like that would it wouldn't have mattered that no one else was paying attention to her right like she would have just been able to talk to her and like there was something in that moment like there's some level of disconnect between her and her mother that like doesn't allow the conversation to happen at this point and like i don't know i i'm not making sense anymore never i think we have to edit this entire part out (laughs) I think it's interesting. I think that I read it as her being just kind of shocked by the hands. Do you think the mom's ghost is maybe feeling a little timid to approach Beatrice? No, I don't think think it reads like that at all. Like, the mother is trying to tell her something. The problem is that Beatrice, like, can't, like, isn't at a place to be able to get it right now. So, like, I think that my thing is that I can't tell if it's, like, from some level of self-preservation of, like, not being ready to face it, or if there's some other block happening. Okay. What do you think the other block could be? I don't know. Some Something magic, you know? Something, like, anything, really, you know? <laughs> 
Okay. Do we want to talk about Beatrice uh, anymore? No, I'm not making sense anymore. So okay, <laughs> I'm so done with her now. We will uh, come back to this episode in a little bit. And if there's any transitions, that's why. Okay. Yeah, we're having <laughs> audio issues. We will be back soon. I have crappy no. internet. Oh, there you are. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right, starting again. So, do you ready? Are, are you ready? Are you ready? I'm ready. Good. I've already started recording. I know. <laughs> it's good. But you can cut all of that out. We just took a break and now we're back. So, where did we leave off? We were talking about Beatrice. And I just want to, just for listeners to know before we delve out of Beatrice land, during our break, I was doing some reading and coincidentally came across some stuff about mediums. And this is cool because during the first part that you guys just listened to, I mentioned um, Beatrice being a medium and how it felt kind of sexist to me. Apparently, and I'm getting this from Waking the Witch, which is by Pam Grossman, she talks about how mediumship is traditionally a a female profession. And a lot of the things we associate with mediumship and the way that mediumship is done in terms of like shaking and faintness and the idea of being a vessel are inherently kind of societally they're not inherently but in society we view those as feminine qualities can i can i ask a clarifying question because i found that really interesting especially because in our first part you know i agreed with you but didn't necessarily read it that way the first time so yeah. was she trying to say that it was also sexist or was she saying that every medium no matter male female non-binary whatever experienced feminine qualities um no she was going more into the history of it and it is a few days removed since i've read the that part of the book i'm not all good yeah so it's she was going more into the history of it and traditionally it was more of a like it was something that we saw from women mediums in the 1800s were women and then also even today when we look up mediums most of them still happen to be women yeah Will you send me that article? I'm now like real interested. I mean, not to say I wasn't interested before, but my my curiosity has been sparked, so to speak. <laughs> it's a book. So it's Waking yeah. the Witch. And I will definitely recommend it to you and show you the pages. Maybe I'll just like photocopy the pages for you and hope you I don't know. I I think that I think that something that I am becoming curious about, you know, in this hashtag year of our Lord 2019 is <laughs> Is this idea of, like, things that have been really femininely charged in the past. Now that we have accepted a slightly more diversified, slightly being the key word, you know, more diversified idea of what gender means, like, do we now in 2019 see more male or male presenting mediums also representing these feminine qualities, like, I think that's something I'm really interested in. Or do male or male presenting mediums now, like, do they have their own qualities? That is really interesting to me, you know? Like, if I was to go to a seance and a, like, very traditional cis male was leading it, like, I'm curious as to how it would differ then from a cis female now would be leading it or, like, a trans female versus a trans male versus a non-binary person, you know? Like, 
what are going to be the same qualities that happen? What are going to be differences? I'm really curious about that because I think it also plays into your idea that you brought up last time about what about this is just stereotype almost like what about this with the fainting with the shaking or whatever like what is this what about this is the stereotype of the time i know i'm jumping ahead because we talk about homework at the end but i think that my homework for this episode is going to be to look into that like what does mediumship look like now you know that would be really interesting and i hope yeah i hope you share your findings with me because i know very little bit about mediumship i think i know a decent about a decent amount about historical mediumship but I also don't know if it's true or not because like my I think we mentioned this as a shout out before but to just drive it fucking into the grave my scholarship like as a human is in romantic slash you know like 18th 19th century poetry and there's a lot of mentions of mediumship in that but it's all female based they all have the same stereotypes So I'm like very interested now as a human to just be like, okay, you know, this is what my scholarship is, but like, let's move beyond that. What's happening now, you know? Yeah, that is very interesting. I would definitely um, like to hear more about that. And maybe we can do like a little mini-sode on it or something. Mr. Basham didn't throw the stone. He didn't have to but he'd witnessed the thuggish act while lurking in the shadows near the tea shop. Interesting, he thought, as he turned a tattered playing card between his fingers as deftly as any magician well-versed in sleight of hand. The Ace of Spades, he'd found it in the park. He could see Beatrice in the dark shop, huddled with the other two witches. The girl he'd spotted near the railroad tracks, the young beauty who touched the obelisk. She was even more alluring in the lantern light. He was still trying to figure out exactly what she was made of. Just the thought of her made him uneasy. She was different, special, frightening. She must be the one. Her glamour was brighter than any witch he'd ever seen, and he'd seen plenty. Something had to be done. We ended, before our break, at the pre- Oh my god, I can't even fucking say this word! I believe in you. Prestidigitation? Fucking page 301! chapter quote-unquote or part right before the new moon place Mm -hmm. it's where mr paul trump says that he doesn't throw the stone because he didn't have to yeah talks about witnessing it he can see beatrice in the dark shop i think we should talk about that before we move into the next part because mr paul in this space has a lot of foreshadowing for the rest of the book wouldn't you say I definitely think so. And I think that, I don't know, during my first read of this book, Mr. Palsham as a character was really confusing to me for a really long time. What did you think of him initially? I don't know. I think I got him confused with the the genie. (laughs) Because Mr. Palsham as a plot point is Mm -hmm. akin to the genie, right? Because he's like a magical figure who we don't know a lot about. But he's also not the genie. You're right. It's confusing. Well, I think the genie, though, we see him not necessarily as good as or evil, but like he is a friend of Beatrice. And I think Mr. Paul Shum, he's at the very least ambiguous. Yeah. I think you read into it more like, nah, so nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, but Mr. Paul Shum is kind of from the get go, like he's got dark undertones. And we also see him 
feeling threatened by Beatrice. And we can see that now, again, like he doesn't know what to think of Beatrice. Which and I think is really interesting because we're on page, Harmony and I have the same edition. We're on page 301 in this book. And technically, this is only the second time we've seen this character's perspective. But still, even from time one to time two, you see a very distinct shift in that feeling toward Beatrice and his perspective and the entire thing. Mr. Palm caught sight of the young girl below. He watched the girl intently. She was the only female in the crowd, the only one of her kind. Pulling his gold watch from his pocket, he worried his thumb over the magic sigil engraved on its surface. What is she? He wondered, cocking his head and licking his lips. He couldn't quite taste it. As the photographer drew the cover over his lens, the train's whistle sounded, calling its passengers aboard. Then the person who ends up picking her up, I'm pretty sure, is right. I think they're described as being differently, but the first time I read it, honestly, every time I read it, I didn't pick them up as being different. I thought it was the same person every time. Genuinely, like that that might make me stupid. <laughs> no, no, because I had the same thing. I thought they were the same person, but you, you're right. Now that you're describing them and I'm reading this again on 66, like, you're right. Yeah, so there are They're two different. Because the djinn, the djinn, I think, is has been following the obelisk to begin with. And he's just, like, there accompanying. And he's the person. And Mr. Psalm, I don't think, wants Beatrice to have that magic. And later, oh, when we... You're totally right, I think. Because from what I remember from the first time I read this, and I'm trying to... I'm trying to talk about this book very purposefully as a reviewer from the first time that I read this, unless I'm being explicitly otherwise, because like, obviously most of us are only going to read this book once. Right. So like, I, I want it to be authentic like that. The first time I read this, honestly, this is frankly at this point, the third time I've read this, like even then I didn't pick up on the difference. I think part of that is Amy McKay's brilliance, frankly. Like I think that this is one of the scenes where we really see her like, craft some shit you know i think it's interesting that she doesn't differentiate more between pasham or however the fuck you say his name and the genie you know like because they they are so interchangeable that i read the book three times i think that's really interesting but you're right because now that you say it like okay we see pasham at the beginning he's watching her he's like She's different. Next scene, we cut to the fact that, like, she's being led by this dude to the to the obelisk. The mm-hmm. next scene after that, she's being led out of the obelisk by the dude that we know as Pshalm, but we imply to ourselves as readers that that's the dude who let her in, you know? It's weird because the genie is, um kind of a throwaway character i feel like and i hope that we... the only time he's there is, is in that is in that scene we hear about him before he comes in there's like a news article that mentions him mm-hmm. being a part of there and then we don't see him again no so i hope that maybe he comes back in the second book <laughs> purdue and the genie give it to me in the second book that's all i want Yes, we want to know more about Purdue, we want to know more about the genie, and then we want to know more about the prophecies being fulfilled, because I don't feel like they're truly, really fulfilled at the end of this book. 
Which I think is part of the point. I think, I think, all right, like, let's be really real. I think that this book, if it did not do well, frankly, would have been a fine standalone. But it did really well, and I think it was smart to leave itself with space to go into a sequel, frankly. You know, like, as a standalone story, there is not a ton that I'm mad about not knowing. Okay. as something that has a sequel, I'm intrigued enough to be like, thank God it has a sequel. You know? Like... Me too. I was mad when I read it, and then I didn't know that there was a sequel, and I was like, wait... Right, I was wrong. Mr. Paulstrom definitely is a mildly <laughs> a mildly to medium evil character. But I think one of the like craft things here is the fact that it's he seems, you know, 300 pages into the book, like we only get his perspective twice. Like we are still uneasy about him, you know? I like that. I like that as a reader. Yes. And I don't know because we don't know that much about him. I'm a little bit hesitant to get into this too much, but Later on in the book, on I didn't write it down, but later on in this section, we see Beatrice is trying to have a vision, and some sort of horned creature comes out of the fire. Yeah. And I think this is really interesting because it's implied that that's some sort of demon, Mm -hmm. and we're talking about witchcraft, and in this book, we see a clear opposition between demons and witches and that is not historically or traditionally really something we see like demons and witches are supposed to be friends except when you're watching charmed i think something that's interesting is that so now you know we're in we're in the next section in the sense that we're in a new moon starting on 305 i think that what you just described happens in this section yes and it's really interesting to me because like there's just, there's so much hat that happens here, you know? Beatrice is being tortured almost by this demon. She, and it's made to, at least as far as I can tell, she is almost made to seem like she's being tortured by the Marys. Like, there is, there's a sense of, like, the Marys are hurting her, and then directly after that, the demon is hurting her. Because the Marys, three nights. Okay. The Marys have gone rotten, dead, and forgotten, laying in their beds with their eyes wide open. The chill hand of death stole them in the night as they danced in a fire that burned too bright. This is one of the real, like, first passages that we see the Marys not being portrayed favorably. They can't get Beatrice back. We can't leave, Beatrice cried. The voice inhabiting her body had changed to a chorus of desperate wail. We can't get out. Help us, Beatrice whimpered, her skin turning red, hair singeing at the ends. We can't breathe. It gets more and more intense from there. Then at the end of that, we see Mary Donnelly and Child. Like, we understand that that's what was wrong in this situation. And then immediately after that, we cut to the place where Reverend Thomas is and where uh, Townsend. And that's where we're starting to look at the devil a little bit more closely. I I think it's hard. I think that, like, Pashom, Pasom, whatever the fuck his name is, like, he's not explicitly named in any of this. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I don't want to say that the Marys are like bad by any means, right? Because especially once you find out what their motives are, they're clearly good. But they torture Beatrice to the point where Eleanor and Adelaide are really concerned. I don't know, right? Like I'm, I'm really interested into what you're saying about like this very strange relationship that this book provides between devil or demon and witch and like what's for and what's against and what's feeding into each other, you know? Especially as Beatrice is a self-made witch who, like it or not, was probably at least partially made with Psalms or Psalms or whatever the fuck his name is. Influence, right? Because he was there at the very moment she became a witch. I don't think so. I don't think that was her becoming a witch. I think it was when she did the witch's ladder. And I think he just observed her becoming a witch. I think the genie helped her touch the obelisk. But I think she was already on her path with the witch's ladder. Can I ask you then? Yes. So I think this brings up a really good question, which is, this might sound really fucking dumb. So if it does, just coming out. But I think that this book brings up a good question of, do we choose our own power? Do we choose our own magic? And to what level does our magic and our power choose us? Yes. I think that is definitely a theme through this book. And I think that the book is trying to say that we have the power to choose our own power and magic. And in the lore, Beatrice is the person who starts that in this very literal way. But I think that it is trying to encourage everyone to be a self-made Witch in the definition of witch in this book in terms of like somebody who helps people and who is powerful and who is not to be trifled with. What do we get about that beforehand though? Like what do we get from that message about what it means to be a woman like before what the fuck like 1880 like whatever you know like I guess that's a question I have. What do you mean? If Beatrice is the first witch to genuinely choose to be a witch What do we get about that? I know we've talked about fate and everything for forever now, but like, what does that say to us about being feminine, being woman, being feminists before this point, you know? So I think the book gives us kind of mixed signals on this because as I've talked about before, I think that we see almost every female character in this book acting as witch in some way like even sister piddock kind of has her own little superstitions to interrupt you i think that besides madame saint Clair, every other woman we see in this book acts after somewhat after the point that beatrice you know makes her way oh okay i mean but what about adelaide although i guess that the argument would have been that she was born a witch too well yeah i think because eleanor at the very least i think it's complicated with adelaide because eleanor describes her as being a witch before Beatrice comes along. And I think she is, I don't know, for me, given what her power is, power, or at least what she does, it seems to be, from what the book tells us, correct enough that Eleanor is right, you know? And I think that there is extra, maybe, strength for that argument. And the fact that Adelaide slash Moth's mother is a ghost and seems to feel like this should be her path, you know? I just... It makes me, it makes me question a lot, you know, like I get your line of reasoning, but if that's true, like, what are we saying for all of the women before then? Or are we saying purposefully that like, 
the 19th century and the rise of independent women who were largely seen as witches was the point where, like, we could make our own destiny, you know? I wonder, I don't know, because I'm not Amy McKay, so I cannot speak for her, but I'm theorizing that maybe it is, like, a larger metaphor for what you're you're saying. Like, maybe we could create our own destiny before, but we just happened to not really successfully do it until this point. And I do, like, what about the Irish girl that we see in the very beginning? She practices witchcraft. She's, like, talking to the river. But I guess these are also people. She dies, though. As- Reverend Townsend's hand. Yeah, but she's still, she is a witch. Yeah. She so doesn't I, know, though. Yeah. I guess my theory is that everyone has that potential and, like, maybe is. And Beatrice is there to be, like, hey, we can all do this and let's like own this power that we as women have. Can I be Yeah, sure. I think that it's slightly idealistic, frankly. Like I'm with you to a certain extent, but I, I do think that potentially that there is a metaphor going on for the fact that prior to the 19th century, women had absolutely no choices Mm-hmm. And that now in the 1800s and the 19th century, especially in the late 1800s, women started to have more choices. I know that that is a fucking controversial opinion in people who probably study what I study. But even if it's not true in England, I think in the United States, like, that's when it proves to be true. You know, like, the United States, at the very least, the 1880s, the 1890s, like, we are not... They were not so beholden to this same Victorian era ideal, which is not, it's hard to describe. Well, there were women working here. Not even just that. The Victorian era ideal in the U.S. and in England is an ideal, but it's the ideal that pervaded society. It's what made everyone think that every woman was acting like this, whereas when you look at the actual texts, when you look at history... There was so much pervasive, so to say, shit. There was so much stuff happening underneath that. I think that for me, as someone who studies this era, like, Beatrice almost launches that quote-unquote pervasive Victorian era into being. Like, women are suddenly really able to make their own opinions, their own shit. Like, I think that's part of the reason why I like Beatrice so much. Aww. I am still eh, about her. <laughs> I will send you many articles. It will totally be okay. And like, this is obviously my own scholarship. I feel weird about saying this, but like off the top of my head, I can't provide you sources. Like I would have to look back into the shit that I've done in the past six years, you know? No, I understand. I think that's, I think that's a good point. I think that it definitely has something to do with the history at that time. And that's why we, in conjunction with all of the stuff that's going on with witchcraft in our book, we see so much about suffragettes. Suffragettes. Yeah. And, um, yeah, we deal a lot with women's independence know. everywhere. I guess my, my, no, 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 no. My, I guess, conflict with that is the fact that, like, I think we see two distinct time periods almost happening here. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whose fault that is or if that's a bad thing or anything, but, like, I, I personally see two separate mindsets happening in this book. I see the mindsets of people in, from 1880 to 1900 happening. And I separately see the people from 1900 to 1920 happening. The oh, 1900 yeah. to 1920 are the suffragettes. 
in my mind. Please, people who are better at history, if there were like real active suffragettes who I want to say very specifically act like suffragettes in this book, talk to me because the suffragettes in this book, to my mind, very much are like, you know, the ones who genuinely bought it, bought us the right to vote. But like, well, Susan B. Anthony is mentioned in this book, and I don't know her birth period, but I think that yeah. we're so close to the 1900s that it's very possible she was alive. She's supposedly friends with Lydia or something, or Lydia loves her or yeah, but- something like that. So it wasn't until 72 that the real voting like aspect started. I do think we should be careful talking about Susan B. Anthony, though, just because she turned out to be such a racist and a bad person and like no one wants people. I, I understand, but she was a suffragette, and so she did, like, suffragette stuff was going on. It was. I I guess my point is just it's not going on to the same. Susan B. Anthony is sung about as being one of the first suffragettes because she was one of the first suffragettes. Mm-hmm. You know, like, this wasn't a movement as much as it was as we think of it being as, like, what, like, the 1910s, you know? It took like 30, 35 years to make it into what became the woman's voting right, you know? That makes sense. I also wonder, I mean, I don't know how well this was researched or what the historical aspects are because I don't know a ton about history and I'm not well versed in it. Fair enough. To be fair, I think the research we've done into it proves that it was at least slightly well researched. Yeah. Yeah. No, it does. It definitely seems well researched, but I wonder if because we're, the book is taking place in New York City. Yeah. If that would have been a movement that was more popular there. Maybe. I just have conflicting opinions about everything that's happening. As has been the whole book. So welcome. Hello. If you're new to this episode, Maggie has no solid opinions. You have many opinions, dear. I want to go back real quick to what you were yeah. talking about with the Mary, um, the Marys and torturing Beatrice. I think that's really interesting because later on in later on on page, it's after this section though, it's in the waxing moon. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Beatrice talks about the Marys mm-hmm. and she talks about how she was letting them speak through her and mm-hmm. how it wasn't as bad as everyone seemed to think. Mm-hmm. and how after that they seem to have like become better they're like nicer to everyone and they're not scaring everyone which is like, something they've been about earlier for real yeah yeah, yeah. 334 334 even when the ghosts of the scrubber girls had been speaking through her she'd never felt frightened or consumed by their presence her soul hadn't been possessed as everyone believed, but rather she had felt as though she was lending the girls her body to use as medium through which they could speak on their own behalves. Given the depth of their sorrow and anger, it seemed like the only way to properly convey their message. Not that she thought any of that through in that moment. It had all happened instinctually, but she'd always been fully aware of what was taking place and she'd been willing, even glad, to be the ghost's vehicle. And I think that's really important because we had talked about mediumship beforehand and about women as being a vessel. There's a very explicit level of consent there. Yes. Yes. I feel like consent is really important here. I think that, I think that's something that I am mildly concerned about is the idea of like, 
consent after things happen almost like yeah this happens to beatrice and afterwards she's like oh it's okay you know like i had that initial reaction too but now that we're going over it i wonder i mean i wonder if that's partially just the nature of mediumship and we can find out more about that once you research all of that hopefully i also think though that Amy McKay is deliberately trying to talk about consent here, especially because we do have female characters. And before that, she, Beatrice, in this section that we just came from, is with- Can I ask one question based off the question that you just posed? Yes. Do you think then that she is potentially posing that female-female consent is more consensuous than anything else? Because Beatrice is being taken over by female bodies- And this is one of the most explicit places in the book where we see Beatrice being like, yes, I consented to XYZ happening. And even, honestly, frankly, going against my own opinion before, with her mother, after the fact, she's, I wanted it, but I couldn't understand, you know? What do you mean by female-female consent? The Marys are all female. Mm -hmm. Tobias, like, um, Brody's dad. To me, if we're going to put this in this larger context that we have now been talking about, Beatrice does not go back about Tobias and being like, yes, I consented to him. And be like, this is what should have happened. Like, Tobias just happened to her. She, he just happened to her, you know? I think... And he's um, the only male character, to be fair, that has possessed her in the same way. But he's, so the difference I think with Tobias is that he was using a vehicle and Beatrice had consented to using that vehicle, right? She consented, like he was not possessing her, he was helping her. So does she with the Marys right now, didn't she? No, the Marys forewent the vehicle and possessed her. Okay, 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 I get you. Yeah, they are the only entity that have physically used her body as a vehicle. Tobias- Yeah, Tobias moved her hands. I get you. And her mother also tried to move her hands, and she did not necessarily say no, but, like, as we talked about last time, I think the the no or yes or whatever in the front was ambiguous, depending on her personal reaction, you know? But I think consent is a portion of this chapter, and I'm looking at the unsent letter. That's a big theme throughout this chapter, because earlier, Eleanor and um, Adelaide are talking to her about... So on page 336, we see both Adelaide and Eleanor talking to Beatrice about boundaries because Beatrice is overwhelmed by all the ghosties. So both Eleanor and Adelaide are instructing, mostly Eleanor in the beginning, are instructing Beatrice about how to set up boundaries. And a couple of paragraphs from like what... Beatrice asks, what do they care? Who am I to them? She's talking about the ghosts. And Adeline joins with them and she says, you are Beatrice Dunn. You're a witch. You're not to be trifled with. Later on in this section, Eleanor talks about how setting boundaries is kind of like, with ghosts, is kind of like setting boundaries with men. Yeah. So I just think that's really interesting. Like, I think Amy McKay is very deliberately aware that her that Beatrice is a young woman and Agreed. that yes and so I do think she's trying to make this um a positive experience for her character 
I agree. Do you think that she succeeds in that? Like, genuinely? I think she, because personally, I think she does in some senses. And doesn't in senses that we have both already talked about and frankly will talk about. Not to be, like, dramatic and, like, vague, but I think that you will at least get what I mean. No, I understand what you mean. I agree with that assessment. I think that Beatrice, and this is my whole problem with her, is kind of, like, she just doesn't really know what she wants No, for a lot of this. And that is why... um that's why I think that the consent may be a little bit more iffy because she, we constantly seeing her trying to be like amendable to people and um, to like meet their expectations. Yeah. And to like meet their expectations and to be polite. Yeah. And that's not, and by the end, I don't think she's like that anymore. Yeah. But that's that kind of puts the consent question more at odds. And I also think that's interesting because in this section, I think we also, Beatrice kind of tells us that both Adelaide and Eleanor have different visions for her future and are both kind of like competing over what Beatrice oh should God, do. Yeah. And she herself doesn't really know what to do. Can I can I complicate this just a little bit? Yes. I think that there is something very complex about the fact that Beatrice thinks she knows what she's consenting to when she makes the witch's letter versus Mm -hmm. what she is actually consenting to feeding into what you're saying with the sense that like consent can frankly, in this case, take four different paths, right? Like Mm -hmm. I think in real life you can consent to one thing and, and I don't want to say And in another person's mind, be consenting to like 10 things with that one sentence. I think that this book talks about that very well. Like Beatrice, frankly, consents to what is provided for her from the witch's ladder, which she is slightly unclear on. Mm -hmm. Then she goes to the obelisk. She is slightly less unclear on what the obelisk represents. After that, everything is blown wide open from her, for her. She has like nine different options to choose from. I think there's a really fair question to ask what is consent versus those nine options, right? Like for someone who chose to make the witch's ladder, but also didn't really understand, really, frankly, she wished that magic was real, but didn't know, you know? So like, I think that's a very pertinent question. I think that consent here is really the question of the story, you know? Like, if you consent to one thing, like, if you consent to A, B, A thing, and thinks it means B thing, so, like, for Beatrice and the Witch's Ladder, you think it means you get magic, but you get to point B, if he's point C, D, E, and F. Like, is that still consent? I don't know. Yeah, I think what you're getting at is that, Consent can change, and Beatrice did the witch's ladder, which is this, like, non-changeable piece of magic. Like, you are, the whole thing about witch's ladders are that they're permanent. I'm sorry, say that again? Fucked up! Piece of magic, yeah, I get you. (laughs) Yeah, so she has, yes, kind of consented, but she didn't know the full stakes of what she was consenting to, and now it seems like she is not really able to withdraw her consent. Oh my god! Every 18-year-old story ever. Not not exaggerating, obviously, but, like, a lot of 18-year-old girl story, like, let's be real, you know? Yeah. I 
definitely think that's at least at the very least a majority of people who identify as being 18 year old girls you know like I think that is something that women themselves have yeah don't don't necessarily aren't taught enough about because we're interested in being polite and we think that once we've committed to something that means we have to follow through with it so many nods yes yes and I do think that Amy McKay is showing that she's at least partially aware with that, with this focus in this chapter of consent. I don't think partially is fair. I think she is aware. I think she shows in a lot of places in this book that she is fully aware, frankly, you know, like. Well, then why does she choose to make her character go through all that? Just because it's a compelling story, I guess. I think that there are places. I'm with you. I'm with you. I think that there are places where it's like, oh, God, like, why? I think that there are a lot of choices that Beatrice is allowed to make, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. I think she's trying to make this a story that's as empowering as it can be. Yeah. I guess that's the hard part, though, because, like, I I think something that I struggle with is, like, if you make constantly the less empowering, you know, quote-unquote choices, like, are you less of a feminist? Are you, did you did you not make those choices? Were you forced into those choices? You know, like I mean, not in my definition of feminism. I think I make. Yeah, I think we both, you know, made um, not traditionally feminist choices, but that does not mean that we don't support the right to choose. I I guess that's just like the thing. I guess just as someone who has seen criticism of this book and like is trying to anticipate that, like I think that for me to a certain extent, Beatrice occasionally, and, like, occasionally, really, making the more traditional choices doesn't make her less feminist, you know? I get that. I think, um... Because she does! Yeah. She does occasionally make the less feminist choice. That's okay. Yeah, I can see that. I wonder if that's, like, am I the criticism? Because I know that that's sometimes my problem with Beatrice. Not that she doesn't make the less feminist choice, just that, like, in the beginning, I feel like we have this, like, really empowered character, and then she gradually becomes less empowered. And maybe that is just kind of being part of 18. I just feel like I don't get to know her, though. But maybe that's because she's figuring herself out. Her personality is a little too bland for me. I think that's very real. And I say that as someone who, like, I was really pro-Beatrice. I really felt Beatrice in a lot of ways. I can't say this without being a dick, but I am, you know, 18 months younger than you. Mm-hmm. Um, I have made some potentially, quote-unquote, anti-feminist choices in my life in the sense that I'm married at 22. I'm really fucking happy at being married, but, like, a lot of people are going to read that as being anti-feminist no matter what. Like, I wonder if there is part of me that, like, and this is a fault of me, I think, and not of the writing. So, like, let's really take this as it is. I think that it's possible that I read Beatrice as being better than you do because I, frankly, see a little bit more of myself in Beatrice than you do. And I don't think that's a bad thing, you know? Like, I think that I think that Beatrice is finding herself in a lot of ways. I think it's okay to view yourself in, like, very multi-perspectives when you're finding yourself. Yeah. Frankly, I also, that I think this is where it gets real controversial. I think it's okay to, like, land on a topic or a subject or whatever, a point of view at 20 or 22 or whatever. 
I think that's the point where it's like, oh God, right? Because like ultimately, right, I think this is getting into spoilers, but Beatrice <laughs> Beatrice lands at a POV of herself eventually. Not necessarily in this part, not necessarily in the parts that we've seen, but eventually she lands at a POV of herself. I think part of the hard part of reading her right now is the fact that she's kind of wishy-washy right now, right? Like, she's trying to figure out who she is. She is heavily influenced by the characters around her right now. And, like, I think to a certain extent that makes her feel disingenuous later in the book. Because it's like, you look at her and you're like, oh my god, you're six parts Eleanor, two parts Adelaide, or whatever, you know? Like, yeah. Is that a bad thing, though? Like, genuinely. No, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think my issue was not that she was figuring herself out so much as it was, and I don't say this, like, to diss Amy McKay or anything, because I think she's awesome. I think it was more, like, the writing style. In the beginning, we kind of got a sense of who she was, and we don't really... We get to see her lose that, but we don't... I, I think the craft wasn't as much there for me as it, as it, like... As it has been with other protagonists who go through similar trauma. It just kind of seemed like an empty hero archetype. And like she was purposefully vague. But I would have liked to see the vague, the vagueness be more complex. I think, I think if I my counterpart to that is that like as someone who was... It's hard, right? Because we're only two years apart ourselves. We're but 11 like, months apart. Stop aging me. <laughs> we are 11 months apart and you are 23. <laughs> anyway, I'm just saying. I... I see myself more in Beatrice at the beginning, I think, than you do. So I I don't see that, like, departure as much, right? Like, for me, her change is, to me, really natural. Not because I haven't ever felt the, the, like, the whole finding myself thing. Because I get that you've made choices at 22. You got married at 22. Just for the record, so everyone knows, Maggie is 23, and we are 11 months apart. She is aging me. (laughs) She was in my bridal party, and she loves my husband. For me, I feel like if I were reading a story about your life, and maybe it's because I've watched you go through these things, right? And I've, like, I've experienced this. Yeah, like, I think that there would be more insight into your, like, your struggle, and we would just see more. And I think part of it is just, like, it's a convenience thing. Like, this is how the story maybe needs to function so that we don't get into too much craziness. Yeah. But I think we get to see more of Beatrice's mindset and struggle in the beginning. And then as she, like, becomes more uncertain, yeah. her depiction becomes vague. that part two and three, not necessarily art part two and three, but whatever, like, she does fade into the background a little bit. I guess, I think just... I think that it's okay to like Beatrice. I just personally... And mad. No. That's all. I guess for me, like when it comes to strictly craft, I think that for me, if we did not develop Eleanor and Adelaide as much as we did in mm-hmm. like our parts two and three, we would have fucking hated them for the rest. You know? Yeah. yeah. I think also that Beatrice. I don't know. I just. I don't know. Whatever. I'm a piece of shit. I identify with Beatrice. Whatever. It's okay. That's perfectly. And I think that's partially why she's a little bit more vague. I think that we see that in most protagonists. I'm not offended by you. It's all good. We can include that there. I just, like, I'm just saying, you know, like. Harry Potter is vague as fuck. Hell yeah. And everyone identifies with Harry. I'm real young, you know, like, for me, 
I know we're only 11 months apart. I know it's only a year, but you've also been in the workforce for like three years more than I have. So Harmony graduated half a semester earlier than I did. And I spent in comparison two and a half semesters more in school because I got a graduate degree. So like our adult life idea is really different, especially and like, can I get real personal about this? Are you okay with that? Yes. And we'll cut it out later if you don't want to keep it. (laughs) No, 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 it's all good. But like my husband's in the military. So like my adult life to a certain extent, I have our adult lives have to a certain extent been very different and like I think that's part of the reason why we view Beatrice differently you know and I think that there's part of me that's like yeah like Beatrice you know like just do you and that's yes I think I understand what you're saying that could that could definitely be why we identify differently with Beatrice and maybe yeah maybe it is just because like even though you are much more of an adult than I am in a lot of ways maybe because I've been in the workforce more I like I feel removed from like that freshman that freshman phase or being like the youngest i'm not trying to say that you're older or anything that like because that's bitchy and not true no no it's fine i'm okay i'm trying to say that you graduated college in three and a half years and immediately went to work a you worked a full-time job immediately it was a shitty full-time job anyways (laughs) immediately and your life was, I think, very different than ours in a quick way. I think there is something to the prospect of how fast you grow up in the sense of, like, your monetary situation. I think that my point about being married right now, and especially to someone in the Navy, right, like, to a certain extent, I don't feel grown up. I have my husband. I have his income. Doesn't matter what the fuck I do like he's there he's there for the next eight months he's there frankly given like the state we live in like their unemployment like he's there more than that I I don't get that level of like teenage aloneness teenage poverty teenage whatever or like even early 20s whatever you want to call like I don't get that I think a as the same way harmony does but like more importantly the way the book does you know does that make sense i think that definitely makes sense and maybe that's why i identify more with adelaide in a lot of ways yeah because she's like the rough and tough must make the monies (laughs) i think as someone who is in a semi-financially strict place like i still identify with adelaide in that way with like the must make the money so like i can only imagine and I try to as to be as empathetic and sympathetic with people who are even more in that spot than I am like it's hard you know yeah fucking tough life like I get that anyways should we move on to the like next short chapter because they are short yes let's move on to the next short chapter we are at the devils also believe in tremble tremble I yeah! I'm good I'm here hello hi <laughs> I hate Reverend Townsend, and that's all that matters. Also, really fucking sunburned. That's the second thing that matters. For those that don't know, we filmed this now over Google Hangouts, so Maggie can view her sunburn. Fucking lying, am I? This is my titty. This is my sunburn. I see. That is, yes, we can see her titties and her sunburn. (laughs) Not my real titties, but like my hair mini titties. She got me. 
We also and we tremble. The prostitutes. I'm so fucking angry about. (laughs) Are you are you angry at the prostitutes? No. Okay, I understand. So what do you make of the prostitutes? Do you think it's interesting that one of them has a rabbit's foot? I think it's the girl that ends up dying, Jenny Green. Yeah, but like I also don't know what to think about it because like it doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, it's very sad. She has the rabbit's foot. Let's talk a little bit about the prostitutes' relationship with each other. So they're not exactly friends, but they're friendly. They're not enemies either, though. I think that's really important to make clear. Like, they are not even frenemies, I would say. Like, they are more friends, in my opinion, than they are enemies. I think this is another place where it's like capitalism, you know? I could see that. I think what bothers me, though, is that, like, they're also a little bit indifferent to each other. And I think that's why Jenny ends up getting murdered. Because even though she's a prostitute. Yeah. Is that not supposed to be a profit of capitalism, though? No, I mean, it is. It's that's definitely a capitalism thing. But it's also, I feel like, kind of a patriarchal thing. I know you're watching Handmaid's Tale. And I like to talk about Handmaid's Tale a lot. But one of the main things within both that book and that show is that, like, when women stick together, good things happen. And that's also a theme we see throughout this book. The point is, when they don't stick together, bad things happen. When they're at each other's throats, bad things happen. And not that these two, not that these girls are at the throats of Jenny, but I think they are kind of indifferent to her. And the fact that they aren't friends is what makes Jenny vulnerable to the Reverend. I think though that there is a sense of like, I think there is a weird balance where if they had noticed what was happening earlier, they would have stopped it. You know, like, I think there is a weird middle ground here where like, yes, to a certain extent they are at fault. But also, 75% of the fault is with this fucking dude, you know, who just decided to murder her. And I guess I just don't know how to talk about it because, like, part of me is, like, dudes obviously should just not murder women or women-identifying people. And like murder anyone. (laughs) Yeah, or or obviously anyone. But, like, also there's part of me who is, like, God, this is going to be controversial, and I wish it wasn't, but it is. I can put it out. There is... (laughs) There is a real strong part of me who feels like women are probably going to be murdered by men. And therefore we need to stand together. And like, I think the thing that hurts me is the fact that they don't stand together. And like, I think what extra hurts me is like, how does capitalism slash making money slash prostitutionism, whatever, whatever that's called. And I don't mean that to be like a criminal thing. Obviously I'm really for sex workers and doing their thing, but like, how does all of this come together? You know, like, cause I think that it's really complicated. And I, I frankly think that Amy McKay makes it complicated in a kind of good way in her book. Like I'm not saying that everything should have ended as it should have, but I think that she, really exemplifies how complicated it is at least in one way in a good way in her book no I definitely agree because I think that we see the hardships and like needing to make money as an example and Adelaide's character as well and that hardness does um lead people to cruelty Mm -hmm. not that these girls are cruel but 
it's not it's hard though right because like they're not cruel they're not but at the same time she gets taken away and because of their professions they don't give a fuck and because they don't give a fuck she gets murdered and also i would say more importantly because she owes them money they don't give a fuck you know like yeah because they think that this her being taken away is like okay she'll just she'll pay us back you know yeah yeah, it's it's really interesting. What do you make of the way the Reverend kills her? You mean fucking her and also slitting her throat? Yes. <laughs> That's how I feel about it, frankly. Put does he up. actually, does he fuck her? Yeah, I think so. No, I think he almost does. 346. With a nod, he grabbed Jenny by the arm and let her down the street. LOL, LOL, no. You like it rough, Jenny asked. She wasn't adverse to a spanking now and then, but he'd have to pay extra if he wanted it like that. I'd let you leave a mark for a dollar so long as it's below the net. For two, he could have someone else watch so long as they didn't touch her. For three, they could both have a turn. For five, she took it in the ass, but she made a point of never offering that up front. The man had to ask, as she'd once been told by a very wise whore, who also happened to be her mother, Everything has a price. Yeah, I get the capitalistic themes now. <laughs> no, 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 I'm sorry. I just, I'm sorry if that makes it, like, spin to my reading. But, like, also, <laughs> I think that's kind of the way it's written, you know? No, it definitely is. And he tosses the silver dollar to the grimy cobblestones and says, pick it up. Pick it up. So she does, and then that's when he kills her. I'm- and he's fine for the for the I think the most important is that the for, for the first part she's fine. Three forty six. That was nah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very even though he doesn't actually have sex, everything he does is very sexual and it's yes. lifetime movie. It's a lifetime movie. Reverend Townsend is the um antagonist of I a lifetime movie. More lifetime movie, like it's so Fine by her, she'd already gotten paid. As she'd waiting for the sudden thrust of his cock, she could hear his ragged, excited breathing behind her. Suddenly, she felt his hand take a hold of her hair at the back of her neck. Before she could sense anything was wrong or let out a scream, a blade slashed across her throat. It's, yeah, it's very sadistic, and it's definitely got sexual overtones. Which is kind of the whole thing, right? He's going after women because he thinks they're witches because they have sinful ways and those sinful ways are being um, provocative, sexually Mm -hmm. provocative. It is to my real life minus the witchcraft. And also, like, as someone, I I feel comfortable sharing this, like, Mm -hmm. someone who is obviously married, like, this level of I didn't even know what to call it. Like, just abuse against women. Like, I feel really lucky to be obviously married. You know, like I, I, I wear both rings. I'm, I'm there for it. This girl is experiencing the same sort of level of 
seduction or sexism or whatever that I do when I'm alone without my husband and wearing rings, you know? So like when I didn't have any of these rings, when I wasn't there, like it's hard to talk about, right? Cause I experienced so much more sexual assault, you know, quote unquote, heavily, 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 but like, it just makes me angry. Everything about this book, everything about, I'm just angry, you know? I'm angry to be a woman. I understand. For those that don't know, today Maggie shared with us an experience she had in which a man, and by us I mean our group of friends, in which a man came and tried to talk her up while they were on the street, while she was on the oh street with her dog. The they. The they was me and my dog. Yeah, her and her dog were walking, and a man tried to talk her up and asked if she had an old man. And we have a big group chat with about six other girls that we're friends with. And four of us came forward and talked about our similar stories that happened this day with sexual harassment. <laughs> so, but it's also not, you know. <laughs> it might be a little raw. Um, no, it's all good. I just, everything about this book is raw, right? Because, like, Ultimately, we come down to the fact that Beatrice should not be harassed for anything, but is. Adelaide should not be harassed for anything. And isn't necessarily, but like her romantic relationship still ends up being about that. Ends up being about harassment? Not harassment, but like her psychedelic powers, which I think could to a certain extent be attributed to that, you know? She's fetishized. Yeah, fetishized. And like Eleanor, the same thing, you know, at least fetishized to what she's going through. Even to a more extreme extent because of like the fact that she's gay. And uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm getting like really upset. That's okay. Um, Speaking of fetishization, that's another thing. I know we've talked so much about Beatrice in this section. No, but before we we deserve to, it, it was necessary, but go on. Yes. Beatrice, I think, is continually throughout this section, all the sections, we constantly hear about how beautiful she is. And there is a weird fetishization that happens there. Like going back to Mr. Pasham talking about, is it Psalm or Pasham? I don't oh, know. No. I, I wish it was clearer, but it's not. I'm sure we could Google it, but uh, correct us if we've been saying it wrong. We probably won't start saying it right because we're going to release this after we already record, but uh, go ahead and correct this anyway. Anyway, <laughs> Mr. Psham talks about how beautiful she is. Bright, or no, not bright, Twitch is like in love with her. But when we looked at Mr. Psham, he talks about how beautiful she is. Bright in multiple pages talks about being in love with her. I mean, not bright, Twitch. Yeah. And then Adelaide also refers to her beauty. And I think maybe part of, my issue of Beatrice's portrayal is that like her beauty is talked about so much and like she is very clearly meant to play the maiden archetype and it's it seems weird and fetishy to me especially because we don't see her ever have a love interest right so none of this is like actually relevant to Beatrice as a person right if there's at least the guy being like oh wow she's so beautiful yeah. who happens to be like her love interest in the story that's yeah. one thing because that's actually relevant but her beauty is not really relevant at all and yet it's constantly mentioned yeah i mean i've never thought about that before but I, 
in contrast to the last episode, I think you're totally right. Like, she is totally represented as being beautiful and pure, I think, more importantly. Mm-hmm. Innocent. Even as she's learning more and more, she's still supposed to be innocent and pure. I think, hashtag spoiler alert, but, like, <laughs> that's why Adelaide is kind of able to take advantage of her, you know? Because she's so pure. And yeah, I think Adelaide does want her to wise up a little bit and like oh, know yeah. we'll talk about this more i think next you know uh part because it becomes more important there i would say as a general theme here adelaide is kind of conflicted because adelaide treats her as being super innocent but also simultaneously wants her to wise up like mm-hmm. i think that adelaide sees herself most importantly in beatrice yes and it's now you know kind of obvious reasons like the scarring and whatever a different person you know and i think that adelaide for for me in this part is wise enough to know that she wants beatrice to have some of the wisdom that comes with not being beautiful but frankly also some of the advantage that comes with being beautiful you know does that make sense it does I think that's all I want to talk about for this section. Is there anything else that you want to bring up? Uh, do we want to talk about Reverend Townsend again at all? Let's talk about Reverend Townsend. I just... He's there. He's a fucking piece of shit. We all fucking hate him. He's abusing women on the worst level and then sexually abuses himself, frankly. So, like, bye! Yes. And he... We can talk here. May I'm going to read a part. He'd been tempted ever so briefly by the whore's pale skin and rouged lips, but after he kissed his cross and recited the song, he'd seen her for what she was, eyes flashing with brimstone, lips wet and thirsting for blood, cloven hooves peeking out from under her skirts. She was the foulest sort of witch, dressed in a low-cut frock, attempting to overpower his faith, clearly too far gone to be saved." I want to die listening to that description. What about you? Like, I just... I think that just kind of sums up his entire character. Like, that's what he's going after. I just... Women are hot, and therefore they need to be killed. And he's only going to choose women he thinks don't have anyone to take care of them. Yeah, I think that the most important part here is the fact that, like, for him, sex is part of this whole self-abuse thing. Women are more deserving of it than he is, no matter... Every angle, even though if we were really to be objective, he deserves it the most, you know, like, and I mean, deserves it in the sense that like, in, in the way that he is viewing it, I'm so angry. I'm really angry at him. I think I'm the most angry at him because like, I think that we have to talk about this. Like we have to talk about his anger towards women. We have to talk about his anger towards men. We have to talk about his sexuality. And what that means for himself, you know, like, because it's, I agree. It's, I don't want to say disgusting. I don't think that's a fair word. It is heart-wrenching. And it makes it disgusting towards women, you know? Yes. No, I definitely agree. You already talked about your homework. I don't know what my homework is. I have more homework than you do at this point. So like. So I think for homework, 
what am I gonna do? Maybe I'm. Maybe I can. Can I also? Can I also look at mediumship because that is interesting. I think we should look at it together for the most part because it's just such a, it's such a wide topic. You and I, frankly, have really culturally different aspects towards it. Like, I know how to say this without sounding like a bad person, but like, as someone who is Romanian and Albanian slash, I guess Eastern European and European in general, like. Mm-hmm. I think that the Eastern European versus generally Western European slash American, like, ideology towards it is different. So, like, it'd be super cool, I think, if I could talk to some of my ancestors about the, like, Eastern European part and, like, you know, yeah. to compare and contrast, if that's okay with you. No, that would be completely fine. I'll take the Anglo-y, Saxony, whitey whites. Cool, because... <laughs> in this one sense i really have a kind of diverse opinion on this so like i got you you know yeah that would be perfectly cool i'm definitely cool with that i think i've been looking at it slightly from a witchcraft perspective as i'm studying that totally fair i think that part of the witchcraft perspective is going to be my ancestors perspective and like frankly i mean not to be like i'm a witch like that's not what i mean but I think it's going to be part of what I grew up learning, you know? I agree. And I also think it's interesting um, because I know that, like, having known you so long, you have always had an interest in ghosts, which is something that I have never really felt called to or cared about. And I'm only now kind of broadening my perspective about it. So I do think that I'm interested to hear your perspective. And it's just kind of, I don't need to talk that much, but I just kind of want to learn more about it in general. I don't want to stifle you at all. I am, I am only trying to say, and it's not to say that I'm an expert. It's just that like in my family heritage, ghosts and like that whole spiritual ancestral aspect is a real thing you know yeah no that makes sense and that is not something that I've experienced I've yeah no because I don't really have much of an ancestry so that's just not something I think we should speak equally you know because like even as much as that's my experience I was six when my died like I'm 23 now so like can't be a real ex you know so like I got you our next chapter goes through page 404. Yes, I think so. No, 351. Three, no, that's what you told me earlier. When no, no, no. 351 is the um, beginning of the next part, I think. And then it goes to 404. Yes, cool. Yeah. So 351 to 404 is what we'll be reading next. We what are you reading right now, Mad? Mad Max. Mad Max, you. Um, so I, can I tell you what I just finished and then move on? Just because I just yes. finished today. So I just finished The Knicks by, what's his name? Nathan Hill. Very lit, thick, three and a half stars for me, worth a read. Okay. Honestly, I haven't really moved on to anything. Maybe The uh, Dragon's Apprentice by Robin Hill, but I I haven't really moved on to anything yet. I will say, if I'm allowed to go on a small tangent, this year has been my most diverse reading year ever. And I don't part of that is racially diverse i will say like a third of my books have been you know racially diverse half of my books have been like lifestyle diverse whether that is someone who's openly gay racially diverse like economically diverse frankly that's been half of my books and 
for context, I've read approximately 100 books at this point in the year. Because she's a crazy person. <laughs> oh, but like, I will say uh, another thing, this year more than any other year, I've read a tenth of my books have been nonfiction. I've never made that happen. Nice. So I, th- I think I'm reading The Dragon's Apprentice by Robin Hood. I'm not entirely sure. You know, we're making a show. Nice. What are you reading? I am still reading Waking the Witch because I have not okay. had much time to read. My reading time uh, has now been consumed by editing, which is a nightmare. <laughs> also moving. Let's not lie. Harmony moved last week. I'm moving this week. Life is a fucking nightmare for both of us. So. Yeah. I also do not read as much as Maggie. I've read like 20 something books, maybe just 20. I've read like 20 books this year. (laughs) I commute six hours a day every day for the past two and a half years. So that's why I read a lot. That's it. That's the whole thing. No, it's also because she has always read a lot. She is crazy person reader. Not in a bad way. Anyway, I need to go hang out with my husband because he's really hot. He just got here. I need my husband. Goodbye. You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Oh, all the